0: Hi everyone, I hope that you are well, I hope that you've had a good week. I do promise that we will get back to our series on Habits for Wholeness, Spiritual Disciplines. Uh, This week, in fact, I was working on the subject of prayer, but seeing as there are entire library shelves devoted to that topic, I thought it may be good to give myself a bit more time on that one. So today I'd like to come back to the passage of Scripture that we looked at last week. As I was reading John chapter 20 aloud for the sermon, I realised that there were a couple of aspects of the passage that I wouldn't be addressing in that sermon, and so I'd really like to address them today. So once again we turn to John chapter 20, and we're going to have a look at verses 19 through 23. John writes, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. This is God's word. Some of you may be familiar with the name Philip Pullman. He's the author of several books, The Golden Compass, The Amber Spyglass, The Northern Lights. Philip Pullman is a very militant atheist, and to my mind quite a dangerous atheist, in that he wants to pass on his atheism to children in particular. I once read an article by Philip Pullman in which he said this, The story at the heart of Christianity leads to the cross, but it doesn't end there. The climax of the Christian story is the resurrection. The confused, contradictory, almost breathless accounts of what happened on the morning after the Sabbath when one woman or two or three came to the tomb are vastly superior as storytelling. Do I believe them, though? Yes in the way I believe the account in the Iliad of Priam's visit to the Tent of Achilles. That is also moving and convincing. When I read it, I feel that if that event had happened, it would have happened just like that. But it's a story, and I think that's all it is. The best way of understanding the event is to think of a resurrection in the hearts of men, if only Christians had been wise enough to leave it at that. Just a resurrection in our hearts then, not a real resurrection at all. Well, in contrast to that kind of thinking, the Apostle John began his Gospel by saying, we have seen his glory. He begins his first letter, the book of the Bible that we call 1st John, in this way. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. That verse seems quite repetitive and quite redundant. We've heard, we've seen, we've looked at, we've touched. But John isn't just piling up verbs here in order to be poetic. The words heard and seen and touched were categories of evidence in Roman law. In other words, John is effectively swearing an affidavit here. It's verifiable. And here, towards the end of his Gospel, John describes another verifiable incident that took place on that very first Easter Sunday. John tells us that it is evening and the disciples were together Uh, Not just the eleven, but probably the woman who had come back from the tomb, as well as Cleopas and his friends. They are possibly in the upper room where they had first held the Passover supper. And we read that they are terrified. John tells us that the doors were locked. Not just one door, but the front door to the house downstairs and also the door to the room in which they are all gathered. You can imagine them fearfully listening to every step outside, every creak of the staircase, every shout in the distance. They were convinced that the same fate that had befallen Jesus would soon be theirs, too, any moment they would be arrested. And it's into this situation that suddenly they discover that Jesus is there, too. He just appears. Not that he is just an appearance, an apparition. He is truly there, but he has a body that does not have the same limits of space that ours do. He appears among them. This ability of Jesus to suddenly show up is very significant for our own lives. Pastor John Piper puts it this way in one of his sermons. It means that today in your life... Jesus can go where no one else can go. He can go where no counsellor can go. He can go where no doctor can go. He can go where no lover can go. He can reach you and reach into you anywhere and anytime. What he is capable of you cannot imagine. And it is a healing wonder to contemplate that all the complex layers of your life, which neither you nor anyone else can understand, our familiar territory to him. Jesus doesn't just appear to the disciples, he speaks to them. And the words that he speaks can be divided into two broad categories. Firstly, Jesus speaks words of comfort, and then secondly, he speaks words of commission. Firstly then, there are words of comfort. Verse 19, peace be with you. You will know that that was the normal greeting in Jesus' day. In fact, it's still the common greeting in Israel to this day. Shalom, peace be with you. But Jesus isn't simply giving a polite form of address here. Remember, Jesus had said to his disciples back in chapter 14 on the night before his death, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Jesus gives his disciples a very different kind of peace. He gives them his peace in place of their fear. As we've said, they are locked up in an upper room, terrified that the Sanhedrin were going to come and arrest them too. But Jesus gives them peace in place of fear. Perhaps we too are fearful today. Maybe our fears are for a loved one. Maybe our fears are for our own health, our own life, perhaps our livelihood. We can reach out to him in our fear today, and we will hear him say in the words of Isaiah 41, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. But there's much more to the peace that Jesus gives to the disciples here. Have a look at verse 20. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side. Again, Jesus said, Peace with you. There is a much deeper and more significant peace here than simply the stilling of disturbed hearts. Paul writes about this peace in Romans chapter 5 when he says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus said, peace be with you, he was speaking about the new peace that his death and resurrection had accomplished for the disciples and for the whole world to all who would believe in him. It's only because of his death and resurrection that peace with God is even a possibility. The little word justified that Paul uses in Romans 5 is a very important and special word. It's a legal term and it comes from the law courts. It's the opposite of being condemned. Justified means to be declared not guilty. Many years ago there was a homeless criminal in America called William Callahan. He'd lived a rough life and had been jailed for theft, but one night he became a Christian at a church meeting, and from that moment on he tried to live down his old life. But he found it very difficult. The police kept him under constant surveillance because they couldn't believe that someone like him could ever be rehabilitated and they were waiting for him to commit some crime. After five years of this he went to Chicago and with the help of a Christian lawyer he managed to get his police photographs back from the police. He didn't want to be known as a criminal any longer. Then he tried the prison authorities but he ran up against a brick wall. Their reply to him was very short. You might have got your records from the police, but you can't get them away from the state of Illinois. Many years later, William Callahan was an old man and quite sick. And one night he gave his testimony at a church meeting, which just happened to be attended by three state governors, including the governor of Illinois, John Atgeld. And by the end of Callahan's testimony, John Atgeld was in tears listening to the story of this man's changed life and the difference that Jesus had made. A month later, William Callahan received a letter from the governor of Illinois. It said this My dear Callahan, it gives me pleasure to enclose your photo from the state penitentiary and to tell you that your records there have all been destroyed. There is no record except in your memory that you were ever there. You have the gratitude and best wishes of your friend, John P. Abgeld. That would probably be legally impossible today, but that is what God has done for us in Jesus. Remember the legal term, double jeopardy? You can't be tried for the same crime twice. Well, Jesus has been tried and condemned and executed in our place. Justice has been done, and we cannot be tried again. Our sin that separated us from God, that affected our relationship with God, is dealt with. And we experience peace with God. We can come home to him. Before we move on, let me pause here and ask... Do you know this peace for yourself? Are you in a right relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ? John goes on to tell us in verse 20, the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And this is what Jesus had said would happen. Do you remember on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices, You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. And so again, these are the wonderful things that God offers us today through the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace, joy, life. In this passage, Jesus speaks words of comfort, But in this passage, Jesus also speaks words of commission. Although Jesus says, peace be with you, this is not the peace of escape. It's not the peace of solitude or the peace of seclusion or the peace of stillness. So interesting that in chapter 14, Jesus promised his disciples peace immediately before his death. My peace I give you. Now he gives them his peace immediately before he commissions them verse 21. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. It's ironic, isn't it? The disciples are locked in an upper room, hiding from the world, and Jesus doesn't invite them to remain separated from the world. Instead, he sends them back into the world from which they are hiding. And there are a number of things that we need to see about this commission. Firstly, there is the importance of this mission. Again, verse 21, As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. It's very interesting, as one Bible scholar points out, that Jesus doesn't consult with the disciples as to whether or not they want to go back into the world. He just sends them. So important is this commission that it is not given in the form of a request, but rather in the form of a command. Because here we see in verse 21, the mission exists in the very heart of God. It is central to the Trinity, the Godhead. Throughout John's Gospel, Jesus referred to his Father as the one who sent me. And he referred to himself as the one whom the Father has sent. And Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. God is a missionary God. And as one writer points out, the degree to which individuals and churches are committed to mission, both locally and throughout the world, will be a measure of how godlike or how godly they are. If we are not at all concerned for the world, then we do not share our Father's heart. This isn't an optional extra for the Christian life, take it or leave it. This is the mission of the Christian Church, the reason for our existence. Again and again, we need to remind ourselves of Jesus' final words in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. Secondly in these verses we learn about the content of this mission, verse 23, if you forgive anyone their sins they are forgiven, if you do not forgive them they are not forgiven. Now this is quite an obscure verse. You may know that this is one of the main verses that the Roman Catholic Church uses to explain the system of confession and absolution. So you can go to a priest and confess your sins and at the end of your confession you can hear the words from the priest, your sins are forgiven. Now there is a place for confession within the Christian church. I think that to a large extent we don't confess our sins enough. Remember the Apostle James saying, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you can be healed. Some of you are perhaps sitting on secrets today, and you're terrified of bringing them into the light. But if you'd just find a trusted brother or sister to share with, it would be one of the keys to finding freedom. James doesn't speak about us confessing our sins to a priest. We're to confess our sins to each other and pray for each other. But when Jesus speaks about forgiving sins, I don't think he's talking about confession at all. And the reason that I say that is because the disciples didn't understand Jesus's words in this way. When you read through the book of Acts, which describes the life of the early church, there isn't a single account of the disciples forgiving people their sins or declaring that someone's sins were not forgiven. What we do see is the disciples preaching, urging people to repent from their sins, and warning them of what will happen if they fail to repent of their sins. And this is the mission of the Church in the world. We are to proclaim forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. And Jesus tells us that there will be two responses. There will be those who will repent, and there will be those who will remain unrepentant. And we are to preach that there is forgiveness for those who will repent, but there is no forgiveness for the unrepentant. In Luke's version of this story, Jesus says, Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in my name to all nations. Please notice then that repentance and forgiveness need to be preached. We hear a great deal about lifestyle evangelism and showing people the truth of Christianity through our lives, and there is great value in that. All four Gospel writers record slightly different versions of Jesus' commission, so that, as one writer puts it, there is sufficient comprehensiveness, both here and elsewhere, to make Christians aware that they never have an excuse to rest on their laurels, or to define their task too narrowly. But at the same time, what is central to the Son's mission, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many, must be central to our mission we can't just live out the gospel we have to declare it thirdly it's very important that we consider the cost of this mission so important to notice what jesus does for his disciples before he gives them the commission verse 20 he showed them his hands and side As we sometimes sing in that hymn, the scars that speak of sacrifice. Jesus shows them the cost of his commission. The story is told of Saint Martin. He was a bishop in France back in 300 AD. And the story goes that one day Satan appeared to Martin disguised as Jesus. There was this beautiful figure of glory and light in front of him and Martin was ready to fall at his feet and worship him. But then Martin looked at the hands of this figure, and he asked, where are the nail prints? And at that, the apparition vanished. I guess that Jesus as God could have chosen any sort of resurrection body he wanted, but he specifically chose to keep the scars. Not only does Jesus give a verbal command for mission, he gives us a visual model for mission. He shows us his hands and his side, and then, in the King James Version of verse 21, he says, As my Father has sent me, even so send I you. The model for this mission is cross-shaped. If our mission in the world is to look anything like that of the Lord Jesus Christ, it must be marked by sacrifice and service. As we saw two weeks ago, our lives as Christians are marked by both Jesus' death and his resurrection. The New Testament scholar Richard Hayes puts it this way in one of his books, The death of Jesus carries with it the promise of the resurrection, but that power is in God's hands, not ours. Our actions are therefore to be judged not by their calculable efficiency in producing desirable results, but by their correspondence to Jesus' example. Jesus doesn't send us into the world to be a sensation. He sends us into the world as servants. As we read in the book of Philippians, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. We have to leave aside our privileges and our immunity to pain and enter into the lives of other people, just as the Lord Jesus laid aside his privileges and his immunity to pain, and entered into our world of sin and sorrow and tragedy and ultimately death. We tend to think that if we give money to the church or we give money to mission organizations, if we send up the occasional prayer for the lost, then we've done our bit. No, that's not it. We've got to get our hands dirty. We've got to leave our comfort. We have to leave our nice world and enter into the nasty, difficult, sometimes dirty lives of others. This was a truth that was urged on little Katie Booth when she was just four years old. Kate Booth was the daughter of William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. When she was just four years old, one night before she went to sleep, her mother came into her room and whispered to her, the world is waiting for you. You are not here in this world for yourself. You are here for God and for others. And those words were repeated to her again and again throughout her childhood. And as she grew up and she saw the example of her mom and dad, she would often whisper to herself, The world is waiting for me. I am not in this world for myself. I am here for God and others. Kate grew up to become a captain in the Salvation Army in Paris. She was so loved among the common people, the down and outs, that she was fondly called La Maréchelle, the Marshal, the highest rank in the French army. She used to sign her letters, Yours in blood and fire, Kate Booth. One day she was travelling on a train in Paris and she was recognised by the man in her compartment and he told her that he'd seen her in Valence and he was very impressed by her work. And then, as if to show that he was also doing his bit, he said, I go to church every week. And Kate Booth said to him, is that all you do for a dying world? You go to church? We have to leave the comfort of our own world, our own culture, and we have to enter the very different world of other cultures and languages and preferences, because the essence of the incarnation was the crossing of the great boundary between his world and our world. This mission will cost us. It will cost us our life as we die to our own agenda, our own preferences, our own needs, our own comforts, and as we live for Christ. As the Father has sent me, even so send I you. Well, all of that might seem like a bit of a tall order. How in the world are we supposed to do all of this? Well, before we get discouraged and disillusioned, we need to see finally the empowerment for mission. Verse 22. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. In the first verse that we read, verse 19, John presents us with a pretty pathetic picture We have the disciples huddled together in an upper room with the doors locked in fear for their lives. But four weeks later, these same men and women are out on the streets of Jerusalem, loudly proclaiming that Jesus has been raised from the dead. All but one of the eleven disciples went on to die a martyr's death because they refused to give up their belief that Jesus was alive. What happened? Where did they get their confidence? Well, firstly, they must have seen Jesus alive again. You wouldn't die for a lie. But secondly, as we read here, they received the Holy Spirit. Here, Jesus demonstrated symbolically what they would later receive physically on the day of Pentecost. In breathing on the disciples in this way, Jesus is demonstrating to them who the Holy Spirit is. It is his presence in their lives. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come back to you. I will be in you. Receive the Holy Spirit. The Greek word that John uses for breathed here is only used this once in the New Testament, but the word pops up a couple of times in the Greek version of the Old Testament. It's used in Genesis chapter 2, where we read how the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. It also occurs in Ezekiel chapter 37, Ezekiel's famous vision of the dry bones, how the breath of God breathes on these old dry bones and they live again and stand up, a mighty army. And so when John speaks about Jesus breathing on the disciples, he's speaking about a new creation and life from the dead. When we open up our lives to the Holy Spirit, in our daily surrender to God, in our listening and obeying His still small voice, we too will experience a new creation and life out of death. We receive the confidence and the power and the peace that these early disciples experienced. I remember once reading a definition of preaching that said that good preaching was that which comforted the disturbed and disturbed the comfortable. And as we've seen in these verses, I think that Jesus does both here. He brings comfort to our troubled hearts, but then he also commissions us. He asks us, no, more than that, he commands us to go into the world and to comfort others, with the same comfort that we ourselves have received from God. The story is told of Fritz Kreisler, the world-famous violinist. On one of his trips he discovered an exquisite violin, but he wasn't able to buy it at the time. Later on, having got some money together, he went back to the cellar, only to discover that the violin had been sold to someone else, a collector of musical instruments. And so Chrysler made his way to the new owner's home and found the violin in a beautiful display case in a room full of other beautiful instruments. And Chrysler offered to buy the violin from the collector, but the collector said that it had become his prized possession and he wouldn't sell it. Chrysler was very disappointed and he was about to leave when he had an idea. He said to the collector, Would you mind if I played your violin? And the man said, yes. Chrysler lovingly picked up the violin and filled the room with the most beautiful music, and the collector's emotions were deeply stirred. He said, I have no right to keep that to myself in a display cabinet. It's yours, Mr. Chrysler. Take it into the world and let people hear it. And as we leave the events of that very first Easter, Let's not leave it there and lock it up for another year. Let's take it to the world and let people hear it. Amen.